0: Welcome to Trust Me, the official podcast of the Trusts and Estates Section of the California Lawyers Association. The Trusts and Estates Section seeks to further the knowledge of practitioners through updates and a wide range of educational opportunities. In addition, the section monitors and participates in the formation of laws and regulations that impact the Trust and Estates field and represents section members in the governance of the California Lawyers Association. For further information about the trust and estate section, please go to calawyers.org. Click on Sections, Trusts, and Estates to learn about upcoming educational opportunities and the benefits of section membership. And now, to your host of today's podcast.
1: My name's Jeff Galvin. I'm a partner at the Downey Brand Law Firm based in Sacramento. Inheritance forgery is more common today than you might think and we should consider new ways to protect against it. That's the gist of an article written by Professor David Horton, who joins me today. David joined the faculty of UC Davis School of Law in 2012. Students have awarded him the Distinguished Teaching Award and three times have chosen him as their commencement speaker. Part of the reason is his sense of humor when David teaches a contracts class, he dresses up in a chicken costume to discuss how the word chicken might be interpreted. So, welcome, David. Welcome to Trust Me, and thanks for joining us.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: I've been looking forward to our conversation today on inheritance forgery. You co authored an article with this title that appeared in the Duke Law Journal in 2020. A link to your article which was co-written by law professor Reed Kress Weisbord, appears in today's show notes. So let's start out with this concept of inheritance forgery. Can you tell us what you mean by that term?
0: So Reed and I were really interested in forgery that relates to all forms of wealth transfer that occur near death or at death. So, you know, obviously forged wills, but also things like forged deeds and forged life insurance beneficiary designations. We thought that other terms like, you know, trust and estates forgery were just too narrow. So we brought him the title to include all forms of inheritance.
1: So you open your article with a fascinating story, a story about a gentleman named Earl Field, who died at the age of 98 in Northwestern Kansas. Earl left $20 million in property and a dispute over whether he had revised his will shortly before his death. Can you tell us a bit about that case?
0: A state of field was really one of my hooks into the project. So my co-author, Reed, uh, was the one who came up with the topic. He deserves full credit for, for seeing that there was something to say about this issue. You know, at first, when he floated the idea, I was a little bit resistant, just because in my practice, I had seen that Forgery, at least in my view, was kind of a claim that was both often, you know, meritless and sometimes even frivolous. But after Reed floated the idea of writing about forgery, I did a little spin on Westlaw to kick the proverbial tires and see what was out there. And I came across this saga of Earl Field. So Field, like you said, had about $20 million in property, and he was a devoted alumnus of a school in Kansas called Fort Hayes State University. In about 2010, he executed a will that basically left everything to Fort Hayes. But then three years later, he supposedly executed a codicil in the form of a letter to his financial planner. And the codicil left half of his property to his bookkeeper and caretaker, a woman named Wanda Onerby. This codicil looked legitimate. It was on Fields' personal letterhead, And it seemed to have Field's signature, and it also had the signature of two witnesses, this couple named Steve and Kathy Little. So everything seemed on the up and up, but there were a whole bunch of red flags. For example, Wanda Ornerby, the bookkeeper and main beneficiary, had produced two previous documents that were really similar Supposed letters from Field, in which Field said that he wanted her to have part of his estate. But these documents weren't signed by witnesses, and Ownerby supposedly didn't know that Kansas law required witness attestation for a will or codicil to be valid. And it was only after she learned what the law required that she supposedly uncovered this final codicil that Field had executed that actually had the signatures of two witnesses. Then there were the witnesses themselves. Steve and Kathy Little found out that the FBI was investigating the execution of Field's will. And then tragically, Steve killed Kathy and then committed suicide. So the witnesses to the codicil were involved in a murder-suicide, which was a huge uh, fluorescent red flag. Finally, the breakthrough in the case came when investigators discovered two previous drafts of the supposed codicil in a paper shredder near Onerby's desk at her workplace. One of them was actually in her handwriting. It was like a preliminary draft of what she later claimed was Field's codicil. So it was pretty clear that she was the architect of and had created the entire thing. It was just a sham.
1: And for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the terminology, a codicil is an amendment to a will. So in this case, Earl Field had created a will and then supposedly had amended it with a codicil within a few weeks of his passing. And I believe that the codicil was directed not to his estate planner, but to his attorney. At the time, he had an estate worth about $20 million. In the original will, he had left almost all of his estate to Fort Hayes State University. And in the codicil, Fort Hayes State University would have ended up with only one quarter of his estate. Another quarter would have gone to the attorney who had drafted the original will, and 50% would have gone to Wanda O'Borney
0: yeah i think I think it demonstrates that you've done your homework and you know the case better than I do at this point <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, so there's an interesting postscript. your article, I believe was written in about twenty nineteen and the postscript on the case is that there was a trial, a lengthy nine day trial in Kansas state court. The judge found that the codicil was invalid, and that ruling was affirmed on appeal, so Wanda O'Borney got nothing as a result of this episode. What did end up happening is in 2019, she pled guilty to a mail fraud charge prosecuted by the U.S. attorney in Kansas, and she received a sentence of 12 months of supervised probation. Plus, she agreed to pay $100 a month for 12 months to the university. Interesting that in a case where she apparently engaged in some sort of forgery in an effort to obtain $10 million, she ended up with 12 months of supervised probation. David, you explain in your article that estate-related forgery was once a major concern, but now barely registers on the policy-making radar. So let's break that down a bit. Can you give us a flavor of the historical protections against forgery, especially as it related to estate planning? So
0: the slap on the wrist that you described Wanda Aborti receiving would have been absolutely unrecognizable uh, in previous centuries. So trying to pass off a forged instrument, which is known by the archaic name, quote, uttering a forgery, was once like a very serious crime. For example, Roman law declared that if you had tried to forge a will, you would be, quote, deported to an island. Now, I should probably add an asterisk here over the last year, being deported to an island was probably preferable, at least to my experience of being quarantined in a house with three school aged children. But nevertheless, during you know, the Roman era, that was a pretty serious punishment uh, in England in the 18th century. If you tried to forge a testamentary instrument, you could be hung. And in fact, five people were hung between 1741 and 1773 for trying to probate an inauthentic will. So the criminal law created these really draconian sanctions against forgery, especially inheritance forgery. And of course, many civil law rules were also animated by the same goal. Probably the most prominent civil law rule that tries to deter forgery is the Wills Act, which requires wills to comply with certain formalities, such as being signed by the testator and then usually signed by two witnesses who were present at the same time when they saw the testator sign the will or acknowledge a signature. That kind of elaborate right of engaging in testation is designed in part to ensure that wills are genuine.
1: So if forgery was a big concern historically, how did it become marginalized over time?
0: That's a great question and I don't have a clear answer. All I can tell you from the research I've done is this. Towards the middle of the 20th century, if you read court opinions or law review articles or treatises, you start to see these unsupported citations to the proposition that inheritance forgery is rare. So somehow kind of just the overall sense of the legal community was that forgery didn't happen very often. Now, these unsupported claims about forgery were often appearing in passages that criticized Wills Law for being too formal. They criticized the Wills Act, and for understandable reasons, for imposing these bright line rules that invalidated would-be wills, even if there was abundant evidence that the testator intended a document to be effective. You have all these heartbreaking cases where a witness steps out of the room at the wrong time or looks away when the testator puts pen to paper and a court says, I have no doubt that this document was supposed to be a will, but I'm constrained by the Wills Act to find that it's not enforceable. And I think there was so much attention focused on reforming what was perceived to be this extravagant formalism in Wills Law that the purposes of the Wills Act, including deterring forgery, got thrown under the bus without a lot of serious consideration about whether they served social value. So the best I can say is that forgery was simply a casualty of the movement to relax the formalities of the Wills Act.
1: Well, that makes some sense, right? You want to honor the intent of the settlor, and it's a shame to see someone's clear wishes disregarded because of a technicality, right? Absolutely. Well, so having focused my litigation practice over the past dozen or so years on trust and estate disputes, I very often hear from potential clients who claim that signatures are forged. They talk to me about signatures looking shaky or loops not lining up. And I initially approach those kinds of claims skeptically. Maybe there was a forgery, but perhaps it's just wishful thinking by someone who hopes to inherit. And you offered comments along the same lines about where you were when you started to prepare this article. You write that the ancient scam of will forgery remains a serious problem. What evidence did you find that led to that conclusion?
0: I really came at this issue from the same same angle that you did. I, I really thought of forgery as a loser of a claim that was usually asserted by, like, the creepy pro se litigant, because to... You know, make an undue influence or incapacity challenge. You really need evidence. You need to be able to tell a story. There needs to be doctor's reports, and uh, you need to sh- point to someone who has you know, access to the testator and can you know, exert their will to the point that it becomes a, a substitute for the testator's will. Uh, those are you know, complex claims to plead, but anybody can just say that a document isn't what it purports to be. So when Reed came to me with a topic, I thought, I don't think there's going to be a lot of there there. But the more I looked into it, what I was really startled by was not just the number of times that forgery surfaces in reported appellate opinions, but the number of times those opinions affirm trial court decisions invalidating the document for forgery. I completely expected forgery to be uh, in the case reports what I thought it was when I was practicing, you know, Hail Mary. But it didn't seem to be that. If you look at the cases, you can see both that forgery is more common than people like I previously thought. And also, you know, actually seems to be a claim with much more merit than I thought it did have.
1: So you talked about finding these cases relating to forgery, and let's focus on will forgery in particular, what sorts of common threads emerged there?
0: Another one of my expectations going in was that forgery cases were going to be pretty simple. Um, You know, in the abstract, it seems like an easy issue to adjudicate, but actually the opposite is true. So one of the things that we saw was that a surprising number of cases involving forged wills involved wills that weren't just signed by witnesses, but had also been notarized. And one of the things that's so striking about that is that, uh, at least to my knowledge, no state actually requires wills to be notarized as part of the execution process. So these forgers had gone to this additional step, obtaining this additional badge of authenticity, but it turned out that the wills that they were offering were not genuine that really undercut my faith in notarization, which is often I think relied on as you know, concrete proof of authenticity, but at least in the cases we reviewed, it was anything but. Another thing that courts really struggle with is that for forgery, if you are the proponent of a will, you need to prove or at least allege that the testator signed it as part of your prima facie case of validating the will. But if you're a contestant, you need to show that the testator did not actually sign the will. So you've got this issue, which is whether the testator signed the will. That is simultaneously part of the proponent's burden to prove due execution and the contestant's burden to overturn the will. So courts have really sort of struggled with how to define and allocate the burden of proof. Forgure cases also boil down sometimes to a battle of experts, In fact, usually that is what makes or breaks a case. So they rely on the forensic science of handwriting authentication, but handwriting experts are notoriously unreliable. Studies show that they often cannot identify a genuine signature and distinguish it from a forgery, that the success rate in some studies is as low as 36%. You know, you've got this inherently suspect science that really is what makes or breaks cases. And then finally, another thing that comes up is that it can be very expensive to litigate this issue, that the cases are long and protracted. So if you go back to the estate of field case that we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, in hindsight, the will that Wanda uh, Oberney offered for probate seems like an obvious forgery, but the trial uh, took something like nine days Uh, And Oberney incurred a million dollars in attorney's fees. And in fact, the trial court awarded her her attorney's fees under a state statute that allows contestants to recover their fees if they bring a claim in good faith. So you've got this really complex, expensive issue to adjudicate. And you basically have all kinds of difficulties resolving a legal issue that at least previously I had thought was very cut and dry.
1: In O'Borny's case, I think that the trial court awarded her a million dollars or so in legal fees and the appellate court reversed it.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: If you add the $1 million in fees that she spent, I'm sure that the university spent probably at least that amount as well. So a couple of million dollars spent litigating a case over a one-page codicil to a will. That's a lot of money. The other thought I have on handwriting examiners is that in my experience, it's a lot like litigating an undue influence case where you might have medical experts who are testifying about someone's vulnerability to undue influence, we have an adversarial system. So the expert hired by one side says that a document is genuine. The expert hired by the other side says the document is not genuine, and the judge or the jury has to sort through that. Yeah,
0: absolutely right.
1: Well, so you offer in your article some proposals to possibly harden the legal protections against will forgery. Can you tell us briefly about that?
0: We have sort of tried to come up with like nudges, with sort of gentle pushes where we could urge courts or lawmakers to take a slightly different approach to some issues um, based on what we uncovered when we looked at these cases. So uh, one thing that we're really skeptical of is notarization. Uh, the UPC, and I believe two states allow notarization to be a substitute for witness signatures. And that's kind of based on this premise that notarization is this bulletproof badge of authenticity. But because so many of the cases involved crooked notaries, we're a little uh, skeptical of using notarization instead of witnesses. Another thing that we propose is that because courts are just kind of at sea in these forgery cases, it might make sense to make the black letter law a little bit more specific. So just like with undue influence cases, a contestant can raise a presumption of undue influence by showing that a bunch of factors were present, such as a confidential relationship and suspicious circumstances, You know, like the wrongdoer actively participating in the execution of the document or the decedent's attitude suddenly changing. We thought that there should be a presumption of forgery that would be linked to the factors that were common themes in the cases that we reviewed. So, for example, in almost every case in which an allegation of forgery was sustained, guess who found the alleged will? It was the person who committed the forgery.
1: Well, so one interesting subject, California likes to be on the front edge of technology and there has been discussion in the legislature about whether California should go along with some other states that have approved the use of electronic wills. In other words, instead of the will existing on a piece of paper, that the will would only exist in some kind of electronic form which might facilitate the creation of wills by Californians. From your perspective, having looked at this forgery issue, what might be the problems with electronic wills when it comes to forgery? It's a
0: great question, and I feel really conflicted about this issue because, in general, I'm all in favor of increasing access to estate planning. And it's possible, although not certain, that electronic wills could do that. But on the other hand, if you look at it from an anti-forgery perspective, validating electronic wills opens proverbial Pandora's box because When you're talking about an electronic document, it's often very difficult to detect whether it's been altered after it was finalized by the testator. It's true that in some circumstances you can rely on metadata to see when changes were made, but that's not always the case. If you compare that to a conventional ink and paper will, you can often tell when changes have been made. So for that reason alone, electronic wills seem to invite forgery. On top of that, you've got this, issue with electronic signatures. So say what you will about handwriting analysis, but we've relied for a very long time on the distinctiveness of a testator's signature to link an instrument back to that individual. When you're talking about a purely electronic document, there's really no no way to establish that link, uh, at least no way that's as easy as a signature. So you see some statutes like Uh, Nevada, I believe, has a statute that tries to come up with other methods of authentication, like retinal scans or fingerprints uh, or even like a voice sample. And those are very interesting sort of preliminary experiments in how we are going to authenticate documents and resist forgery in an era where we're probably going to have a lot of states adopt electronic will statutes.
1: Well, let's shift to a different topic now. One of the areas you cover in your article are issues of deed forgery. So we're talking about deeds to real estate now. So you looked at that in your article, and can you give us a brief overview of how deed forgery can work with respect to decedents' estates?
0: As you may, or in my case may not, remember from your property class, to obtain title to real property... All you need to do is file a deed with the county recorder's office, and that usually just means getting a legal description of the land and the grantor's signature, and then maybe the signature and stamp of a notary. And the clerks who work at the recorder's office uh, are often prohibited by law from rejecting any deed that, at least on its face, seems to comply with those formalities. So they don't do any kind of authenticity check. And in fact, in many states, they can't. What that means is that it's really easy to become an owner on paper. For example, a couple of years ago, the New York Daily News illustrated that in a matter of 15 minutes with a couple of notary stamps, it could become the owner, at least on paper, of the Empire State Building. So becoming the owner on paper is actually very, very easy to do. The main deterrent against massive fraud relating to deeds is actually practical, not legal. It's the fact that even if you are an owner on paper, it becomes very difficult to sell the real property to someone else if the real owner is still living there. So scammers started running deed forgery scams during the foreclosure crisis where they solved this practical impediment to flipping these properties that they would fraudulently acquired by targeting properties that were vacant. Then when the real estate market recovered, they found another soft target, which was decedent's estates. What these con artists realized was that if real property had been owned by a decedent, it was often unoccupied for a long period of time. In addition, the personal representative or trustee of the estate often didn't live nearby, and so nobody was monitoring the property. This gave them the opportunity to record these fraudulent deeds and then act as though they were the owners because there was nobody living in the property who could contradict them, and then sell the property to third parties and pocket the money and then disappear into the ether.
1: You found a fair amount of issues with deed forgery. Did you come up with any suggestions for reducing that kind of deed forgery, especially with respect to decedent estates?
0: One thing that we kind of tentatively propose would be empowering uh, these officials in the county reporter's office to reject deeds under certain circumstances. This is, one of these balancing acts were, on the one hand, we don't want to make the act of recording a deed super laborious, and there are some counties that have to process thousands of deeds every day, so we don't want to overload the officials who work in the recorder's office. On the other hand, in some of the cases involving deed forgery, the forgery has been so apparent that it is kind of preposterous that the law prohibits the deed registers from doing anything about it. So there's all kinds of cases in which a deed was supposedly executed by a grantor who's been dead, and not just dead for a couple of days or months, but dead for years or sometimes even decades. There's missing information on these deeds that nevertheless does not rise to the level where the deed registers can reject the deeds. So simply giving deed registers the power to reject obvious forgeries would be a step in the right direction.
1: Let's touch on just one more issue here, which is this question of a particular type of deed, the revocable transfer on death deed. Here in California, our state's allowed this type of deed since 2016. And there was a 2019 study by the California Law Revision Commission that found no evidence that transfer on death deeds are more prone to financial abuse than any other kind of instrument that can be used to transfer title to real property. Nonetheless, Senate Bill 315, now pending in the legislature, would amend California law to require that transfer on death deeds be signed by two witnesses in addition to being notarized. Is it common for estate planning documents to require both notarization and witnessing?
0: No, not at all. And that seems like a really uh, extraordinary safeguard. And it really highlights something that I'm still struggling with, which is on the one hand, my priors, my, my previous beliefs are that we should make estate planning as easy for as many people to engage in as possible. And so having to get two witnesses and a notary, even in normal times, but you know, let alone pandemic times, that just strikes me as being too much on the other hand. After writing this article about inheritance forgery, I've got you know a, a little figure sitting on my opposite shoulder telling me opposite things, telling me that it can be really good uh, to have extra layers of protection against instruments where there is a track record of abuse. So maybe the best answer in terms of whether or not this Uh, proposal is, is a good idea is whether or not there is in fact a track record of abuse with transfer on death deeds. And if the California Law Revision Commission finds that there has been no such track record in California, then, you know, maybe we don't need to take this additional step of having notarization and witnesses.
1: It's been a fun conversation with you today, David, even though we didn't get to see your chicken costume. So if folks want to reach you, what would be the best way for them to do that?
0: Anyone, uh, very free to email me at dohorton at edu. My contact information is also available on the UC Davis website. And I just wanted to say thank you so much again for having me. This has been a really fun conversation.
1: Well, thank you, David. And you've written quite a few articles. And so I would encourage listeners who would like to see this Duke Law Journal article or other very interesting articles you've written, including about Alameda County probate data and your reviews of that, we have links in our show notes where they can find a full list of all of your articles. And you can reach me, Jeff Galvin, at jgalvin, G-A-L-V-I-N, at downey, D-O-W-N-E-Y brand dot com. Thanks for joining us today. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, Please go to calawyers.org, click on sections, trusts and estates, and look for the education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the Trusts and Estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.